Acts chapter 2 is an amazing passage. Acts chapter 2 is the first message presented after the resurrection of Christ. It's just chock full of really understanding and truth and what we call doctrine. Doctrines are just the realities of God and his grace. We sort of explain them, articulate them, because if they're part of our humanity is to understand and know. But doctrine is not pie in the sky. Doctrine is real. And that's why it's important to be clear on it. What's real? What can we trust in? And this, this message of Peter is just chock full of it. So that's why I've kind of tarried a little bit on it. We've seen the event of the Holy Spirit coming on people, tongues of other nations speaking the glories of God. We've seen Peter appeals first to Joel to explain what's happening. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel and he quotes enough of it to say it begins, this fulfillment of the coming of the Spirit begins the coming of Christ. It ends with the final day of judgment, the day of the Lord. And in between, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter then moves from that sort of framework, that biblical theological framework, if you want to call it that, that historical framework of the gospel. Salvation happens in history, real history. He moves from that framework established by Joel, and he has to bring to the minds of the people that are there in front of him He has to bring to them that they've got some things to deal with, to repent of, and to call upon the name of the Lord. And so that's what he starts out with, what we might call an indictment. Indictment sounds kind of harsh in a sense, but it's real. God is a righteous judge. There's a courtroom, as it were, before God, and there are indictments. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, this historic person, a man attested to you by God, God... God affirmed that Jesus was who he says he was. God was with him. And God did this with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in their midst, in your midst. You have seen this. No apologetics necessary for these folks. Did Jesus live? Yes, they knew. They, yeah, many of them had seen him. Did Jesus do miracles? Yep, they'd seen it. Didn't have to convince them of it. You just got to convince modern people that it didn't happen, or did happen, rather. So the audience knew Christ. They knew Jesus. They knew of his works. They knew of the signs and wonders, just as you yourselves know. Peter goes on, this this Jesus, this one whom God affirmed and attested as the Messiah and Son of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Jesus was a righteous man, an innocent man, and all over in the Gospels at the end, people are saying, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. This man was righteous, the Roman centurion said. He was truly the son of God. But these folks, the audience, even though they were aware that God had been with him, they had engaged in a series of intrigues and manipulations to hand him over to the Roman authorities and to have him killed. But this whole thing, this whole event of the cross, all that surrounded it, everything that happened, all the steps where Jesus was being handed over from one group to the next to the next. 
it was all ultimately in the hands of God. There's this sovereign work of God, the determined plan and foreknowledge of God. And so if we were to look at that determined plan and foreknowledge of God, we can take it all the way back through the Old Testament into eternity past. Passage after passage, space after space, where God determined this, his counsels. And he works all things after the counsel of his own will. God does not haphazard. He's not like us. He's not on the spur of the moment. Oh, let's go and do something. Let's go eat lunch. Or God just doesn't do that. It doesn't work that way. He's got a universe to manage. <clears throat> spur of the moments don't work. We now come to Psalm 16. It's introduced by Peter, but God raised him again. And so before I sort of finish a little review on this, I'm going to be adding some things to it that I did not include last week. And so let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us in this passage specifically. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne and we come personally, we come empty-handed. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to your cross we cling, the cross of your Son, the cross that you provided the cross that you purposed to be that means by which you would have a people for yourself on a foundation of a new covenant that would last forever. A foundation not of our righteousness, but of yours. A foundation that's unshakable, a foundation that will never be moved, a foundation that will always be there. It will never erode, or it will never weaken, it will never crack. Jesus is our righteousness. And he's the eternal word, and he's our righteousness forever. Lord, we thank you for that. These are real things. These are things that, though sometimes we abstractly talk about them or think about them or discuss them, Lord, these are great, grand realities established in the history of your universe. And they cannot be undone and will never be undone. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for so great a salvation. Lord, here we have this simple sentence of your apostle Peter. But God, but you, raised Jesus from the dead. And you loosed the pangs of death, the grip of death on him. And Lord, these are real things. And just pray this morning that you would, by your Holy Spirit, come into our hearts. Make them real, make them precious. Lord, Peter himself writes in another place of the precious blood of the Lamb. Lord, let us see the preciousness of these things, that they're ours, they're a part of our inheritance. Um, Lord, we can only, we, we can't do that ourselves. We can think about it, but Lord, only you can bring light and life to these truths. And we just pray you do it through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter, having talked about the event of the cross and the, that the people in the crowd that he was speaking to were part of that, had participated in that awful event. He starts out with a simple and plain and powerful assertion of historical fact. You all killed him, but God raised him up again. Now again, we need to understand that Peter's audience was closer to the historical fact than any other group in history. This had occurred in Time, only 50 days before Peter's speaking here, before this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The audience didn't dispute any of these facts. Golgotha was about a mile, mile and a half away, as was the empty tomb. I mean, it was right down the road from them. 
and the Holy Spirit, people were still speaking in tongues around them. Because we get to the end of Peter's message, he says, God have poured forth this which you now see and hear. So there's all this evidence, historical evidence, their own eyewitness evidence, which you was in your midst. And Peter says, God raised him up again. He raised him up again. Every dynamic that humans could employ was used against Jesus, but God raised him up again. Every dynamic that the forces of darkness could muster was used against Jesus, but God raised him up again. Satan and darkness, the Jewish leaders, the people of this world did their best to destroy Jesus, but Peter just simply says, God raised him up again. That is our hope, and that is our faith, and that is our witness. Sometimes you don't have to debate you know, all, the, all the deniers of the gospel. Sometimes you just have to simply tell them and say, yeah, I, I know that's what you think, but this is what I know. This is what I've experienced. This is what I'm here to tell you about. Jesus is alive from the dead, and he's at the right hand of God. God has raised him up again. Now, interestingly, in Acts chapter 4, you see, not sure who's praying. The context is is that Peter and John, at the beginning of chapter 3, had healed a beggar who was lame and who was there begging for money and silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. It's an old song I used to sing as a young Christian. I can sing it for you if you want, but otherwise we'll move on. There's this lame beggar, and and they heal him. Peter raises him up, but Peter and John are together in this, and Peter gives yet another incredible message focused on the fact of that what was happening, he says, all the prophets which have spoken have spoken of these days, again, showing that everything that's transpired in Christ is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. God had said it was going to come to pass, and now it has in Jesus now, they've, the <clears throat> priests and Pharisees got upset about it. They arrested him, put him in jail. And now they've been released in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And they've gathered with the brethren to have a praise meeting and a prayer meeting all in one. And it's just really a good, uh, a good place to... Acts is a cheerful, cheerful book to read. So when they were released from their prison, Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when everybody heard it, they lift their voices together to God and said, don't know who was speaking, but somebody was, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Here's some instruction for prayer. The Lord Jesus, when he was teaching us how to pray, giving us a basic outline that we're supposed to hang all our details on. Just praying the outline is not the point. The point is, hey, you know, you got some details here. But it starts out with our Father who's where? In heaven. I have a relationship with the God who is in heaven. He's an invisible spirit. Can't be measured, can't be seen, We know him by the things he's made. We know him by his word. We know him in Jesus, and we know him through the Holy Spirit. We have tons of the knowledge of God. But they start out recognizing that God is the sovereign Lord, just like the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. 
So whenever you start praying, remember, this is, this is your starting point. You go rushing into prayer and, and just, wait a minute. You know, I'm in the king's presence. Let me do some official, official recognition here. This is the one I'm praying to. Yes, he's my father, but he's the sovereign Lord. Hallowed be your name. I'm not talking to just anybody. I'm not talking to an angel. I'm not talking to an important fellow believer. I'm not talking to my wife. My friends, I'm talking to the sovereign Lord. And this sovereign Lord is the one who made heaven and earth. Always remember that. What is modern science, at least part of it? Not every scientist is an unbeliever. And there are believing scientists out there. But science in terms of that part of science and the world of science that has control and the, the voice out there in the public square, what is their great point to everybody? Evolution is every other sentence, even when it you know, doesn't, there's no point to it, they're going to say it. They can't talk to you about a bird or a fish without telling you how long ago it came into being. And you just sit there and you go, why do I want to know that? Why do I even care about that? Why does that matter? As I said to one person, for which I got a lot of flack for, actually I stated on the internet, I said, you could, you could take out all of evolutionary observations or Research, just take all the language out of science and you won't miss a thing. Not one thing will you disturb. Will you? Apparently that's not a thing to say on the internet. But I said it anyway. God has made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in it. And this is to be our recognition of God. And so debates about Genesis and old earth, new earth, and all those things, which I'm in them, and there's, there's questions that I have. It's not as cut and dry as one might think it is. But we have our faith. We have our recognition. I mean, evolution is certainly absurd on it, the face of it. And so that doesn't give me a lot of confidence in the rest of the scientific statements they try to pawn off on me. Because they're pawning off on me evolution, which they themselves know has no scientific basis. They know it. They know it's pure conjecture and a bad one at that. Not any of it fits the facts. And they know it, but they pump it out. So when they start talking about, you know, the age of the earth, I'm like, eh, we'll see. But I trust God. God made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, and we can read about that. There's an eyewitness to it, and he wrote a book, and that's the book we can trust. And that's where we start. And look what they have to say, what, you know, the, the one who's speaking when they're praying, well, look what they have to say about the, the scriptures. They're about to quote Psalm 2, first two verses, and what do they say? You, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in it, you, the great creator, you, the Lord of your universe, you, the invisible spirit who is behind all things, you, through the mouth of a man... David, your servant, said some things through the Holy Spirit. Really simple statement of what we call the inspiration of Scripture, and really as you look at the terminology of the Bible, you should say the expiration of Scripture. It's God breathes. He doesn't breathe it in, inspiration. He breathes into the Scriptures, but he comes out of his mouth. By the word of your lips, I have kept me. The mouth of the Lord has spoken this throughout the Old Testament. 
And that's what they see. So they come to God in prayer, recognizing who God is and recognizing the veracity of his scripture. They are his and his alone. And so they can go to these scriptures and know that they are as real in their time, they are as real in our time as they were when God wrote it through David. Now, David was a musician. So he sang it, and he wrote it. Now in this psalm, there's this generalized description of every class and category of human being. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, when you first read that psalm and you think of it and you go, well, who is he talking about? It's kind of a, kind of, I don't know. It's just, it's just an elusive statement. It's the second psalm. First psalm says, you know, if you're not walking with God, if you're not rejecting falsehood and embracing the truth of God and rejoicing in it, then forget the rest of the psalms. You're not ready. Blessed is the man, the first psalm that... <clears throat> walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer, nor stands in the way of sinners. I may have that mixed up, but, but his delights in the law of the Lord. See, it's the man who has a perspective, it's the woman who has the perspective, the same perspective these people praying, have that perspective of God's word. Those are the people who can sing the rest of the psalms. The rest of the psalms. That's who the psalms are for. They're not for the unbeliever, they're not for the intellectual they're not for the curious. They're for those who trust in the living God. They're the songs of Zion, songs that God here and there writes in our hearts, this one and that one. So the psalm's a bit elusive. It's the second one. The first one is you've got to be following God. You've got to be walking with God. You've got to love his word. You've got to love him. You have to reject falsehood. You have to reject the worldliness of the world. And the next song you come up against is the Messiah, God's anointed and a whole world arrayed against him. You have to have a proper understanding, come to a proper understanding that there is God, there are the followers of God, and then there's the rest of the world that hates God. As Chris will sometimes observe, there's a category of worldliness. And worldliness in the end does this. Worldliness may look innocent on the surface, but below the surface, where it really lives, it lives out of this. Gentiles rage, people's plot, kings of the earth get engaged and gather together for what purpose? To be against the Lord, Yahweh, and his Christ, his anointed, his Messiah. Now, if you read verse 3, what's not quoted here in Acts chapter 4, it emphasizes their rebellious attitude and their determined hostility. Let us cast the, cast, break their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. We don't want God telling us what to do, defining our life, defining who we are, defining marriage, defining right and wrong. Defining who's really in charge of the universe. Defining where the universe comes from. Defining where it's going. 
They want to do that themselves. Gentiles, people, kings, rulers. Then they start to interpret the song, as it were, to the Lord. Again, I think it's just interesting, you know, participating with God in his kingdom and his things. You know, Jesus says, hey, God already knows the things you have need of before you ask them. And so the silly logic could be, well, then why ask? And Jesus says, well, you ask so you can be part of it. Why do you thank the Lord for your food? The whole rest of the world gets food, sometimes better food than you. So why give thanks for it? You already know it came from God. Well, here's a picture. It's called participating with God and the realities of God, and this is part of doing it. Verbalizing and vocalizing together. It's a group of people doing this in prayer with one heart, one soul. Lord, you are the great creator. You give life and breath and all things. You're the sovereign Lord. Your word is absolutely true. It comes right out of your mouth. And here's this world arrayed against you and your eternal son. And this happened, this came to pass. For truly in this city they were gathered together against you, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. This verbal recognition and everybody together, amening in their hearts. This psalm was fulfilled, not in the future, but 50 days ago. 50 days ago. And notice who they see Jesus as, sort of a a summary of the Psalms and the prophets. Your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Holy, set apart unto God, the servant of the Lord, Isaiah. I just... I haven't read much about it in a long time, so I'm really hazy, but there's a whole bunch of scholars out there, they're not believing scholars, who debate whether there's a servant of the Lord, whatever, who is he, is he Jesus? You know, just, you just sit there and you just go, do you not, not read your Bibles at all? Or do you just not trust Peter or whoever's leading this, this prayer? And by the way, God trusted the person praying. How do we know that? God trusted that it was true. God trusted that this was accurate because what happened when they finished? God shook the building. God signed off on this interpretation. God signed off on this heart and purpose. God signed off on this engagement and our participation in the things that are closest to the heart of God. We see, we see you know, Pictures of Saturn, and now the, the, the latest one is, I think it's Uranus. There are a lot of those out there. It's actually a really cool-looking planet for, or no, Pluto. That's it. Pluto that got downgraded to a subplanet, or whatever they call it. It's actually really cool. A lot of things about Pluto that are neat and interesting. Um, it's actually a planetary system. It has moons going around it that are not within its spot of gravity that they're supposed to be, so it's actually considered a little mini planetary system. A lot of cool things about Pluto. And I'm sure those things are cool to God because that's how he made it. You know, you make stuff. You go, that's cool. You make a cake. You go, you know, that cake's really nice. Not not my cake, your cake. But that's not the deep concern of God. Deep concern of God is here and he wants us engaged in it. 
speaking about it, thinking about it. Our hearts immersed in it. Your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Jesus of Nazareth. And then they, anoint, they enumerate the actual fulfillment. The Gentiles, the peoples, the kings of the earth. Well, who were they? Herod and Pontius Pilate. Who became friends that day? They were enemies before, personal enemies. Friends that day in killing Jesus. See, the world has its commonality. The world has its points of reference and unity. Along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, just right out of Psalm 2. This is a historical fulfillment, a real fulfillment. They gathered together to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. Did we just not read this in Peter's verse before, Acts 2, 23? Sure, they were doing it. Sure, they were raging. Sure, they were plotting. Sure, they were planning. The peoples are plotting in vain. And they end up doing whatever your hand, that is God's mysterious working of providence in the earth, which you can't really see, but everyone who experiences it knows it's there. Whatever your hand and your plan, the determinate plan, the determinate counsel, had predestined foreknowledge to take place. Always remember. Always remember, my brothers and sisters, that this is what we've signed up for. We've signed up to be a follower of Jesus, a follower of the King, and we are citizens in his kingdom. And I don't know about you, and maybe I need to fix this, but you know, when I'm watching some of the videos, just about the news, things going on, and, and I hear that China, is their economy is not doing as well as they had hoped. And I, and I talked to the Lord about this. I'm like, for some reason, I feel kind of glad about it. I don't think of the people who are going through the hardships. I think, yeah, now China's not going to blow us up this week. You know, that's how I think. And so I have some self-interest in my country that I live in. I'm concerned about it. I'm concerned about some of the geopolitics because they impact us. All some threads can go into that. Now you can't get too concerned because what? Our citizenship, is it here? Or if it's in heaven? And so if our citizenship is truly in heaven, that's our ultimate citizenship. That's ultimately where our hope is. That's only where our meaning is and our purpose is. We're going to be concerned about the things there. You know, you hear about you know, some mission work around the world that's, that the Lord is blessing. That's part of what you're a part of. You hear about saints being persecuted. You hear about opposition to the gospel. That's part of what you're part of. So we need to be engaged in these things. This is what we signed up for, not just a selfish little personal life. We didn't sign up to have a great life. Maybe some of us thought we were, but we weren't. We were signing up to be a great witness. To be faithful to our Lord and Savior. To make him the pinnacle of our life and his kingdom the realities that we care about the most. To do whatever your hand and your plan are predestined to take place. Whatever we face in our life, it is in the sovereign hands of him who loved us and loosed us from our sins in his own blood.
And so this psalm being quoted here and this praying through this psalm is part of what Peter's talking about. God raised him from the dead. The whole world was against him. The Gentiles, the peoples, the rulers, they were all against him. And yet God raised him up. God raised him up. So last week just sort of focused on the opposition of the world to the resurrection of Christ, the scientists with their naturalism. And if you don't know what that means, it just means they say, oh, well, there's no such thing as God. There's only this natural world. That's all there ever has been. That's all there ever will be. See, that's their starting point. They don't prove it. They just say it because it feels right to them. And then from that starting point, they start making all their evaluations and all their conclusions. And they, of course, will deny the resurrection because that's God intervening into his world and sort of suspending the regular processes of physics and math and all those things. They deny the resurrection. The rationalist, the person who thinks that in between their ears is the only thing that's real. I guess some people are really smart and so they think that their universe is very big but I think their universe is pretty small. Their knowledge pretty limited. So they have no authority in this matter of the resurrection and always remember that. Young folks, as you get older, you're gonna have to deal with this stuff on your own one day. And you remember Does a scientist have any way to put God in a test tube and measure him? No, he does not. Is there a ruler big enough to see how infinite he is? Is there a timepiece that you can measure his eternity with? They have no authority in these things, none. Their opinion about God is as good as anybody else's. So don't take their scientific credentials to be something you think gives them authority to speak about God. They professed that they don't believe in God, so how can they tell you about God? They don't know. Same with the rationalists. They've made their brains, their minds, their supposed fancy logic, and there is logic in God's universe, but they turn it against him, and they make claims about the resurrection that they can't support. They have no authority. The resurrection is about History, it's about prophecy, it's about eyewitness testimony, it's about having the Holy Spirit, God's personal witness to you. It's about faith in the power of God. God raised him up again. And then we just observed briefly, God raised him up. It was God who raised Jesus. The overwhelming percentage of the passages that talk about it are either passive, Jesus was raised, or they are direct and active, God raised him up. The father raised up his son. When he raised him up, he had to put an end to the agony of death. Peter makes clear that the resurrection is from a state of real death. And what's interesting, floating around on the internet are a lot of ideas about Jesus. Did he exist? Well, that's been debunked. There's historical evidence for Jesus. But because there was a group of people 20 years ago who spread rumors that he didn't exist, that still floats on the internet and people still take it up and act as if it's fact when it's just pure fiction. It's been debunked. Same with did Jesus really die? There's people out there years ago said, no, Jesus didn't really die. He swooned. He did this. He did that. 
He didn't rise from the dead. He was never dead. And it's like, that's all been debunked. It's not historically accurate. There's no way you can say it. The only histories we have of Jesus is the Gospels. So if you think you're going to find out something about Jesus that aren't in the Gospels, well, you're basically not. So that's all you have. And so if you say Jesus didn't die when the Gospels make assuredly say that he did, then you've got an intellectual problem and you need to solve it. But anybody will say anything they can to get a hearing on the internet. So again, young folks, be careful. Get your statements about God from God. Go to his word. Don't go to the internet. Some people have some interesting things to say there, fine, but go back to God's word and make sure it's true. Jesus really died. He endured the awful realities of the process of dying and the resultant state of death. And Psalm 2, 22 makes it clear that the worst part of death, the culminating part of death, the essence of death, is separation from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The part of death that makes it more awful than anything else. Jesus did that. We talked about the birth pangs and the reason it was important to see that death, the agony of death is in the original, the birth pangs of death, that's the Greek word, is because it points us to some psalms in the Septuagint. Psalm 18.4 and Psalm 116.3 that Peter's alluding to again, so he's dealing with the Old Testament. Peter's sermon is full of the Old Testament. The cords of death encompassed me and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of shields surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. These cords of death are birth pangs in the original, in the, at least in the Septuagint. Psalm 18 is a vivid picture of the agony and the terror and the hopelessness of death. Jesus experienced real death. He tasted death, Hebrews 2.9, in all of its awful dimensions. And we're going to read this psalm in a minute because it's really important. Because it talks also about deliverance from death and the resurrection. Psalm 116.3, the same thing, the cords of death encompassed me. The terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Death is not a good thing. It just isn't. But God raised him up and he raised him by putting an end to the agony of death. And so what's new today, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. God put an end to the agony of death for several reasons. Actually, many, but they're summed up. Well, it's impossible for him to be held in, the, in its power. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Because it couldn't happen otherwise. Not possible to have any other outcome. And there are reasons for it all kinds of reasons, and we start counting them, we'd probably be here for days and days, but we're going to look at a few. Peter's final observation before he launches into Psalm 16. It was impossible for him, Jesus, to be held in its power. Now, held in its power is interesting. This is the New American Standard, or the NAU. I don't know what the NAS is different from the NAU, but anyway, use the NAU, at least I try to most of the time, unless it's, there's something really better in another translation. But if you were to read the Greek in the NAU, it would, or that the NAU is trying to translate, rather, it would be, 
it's not possible for him to be held by it. Held in its power is the New American Standard's attempt, and it's a good one, um, to try to capture the sense of this word held. Should just simply read, if we were just to translate it, possible for him to be held in its power, but when we look at the sense of what held means, then you will understand why, held in its power. Greek word is krateo, means to take hold of forcibly. It's not just to hold something in your hand and, oops, I dropped it. It means to grab something forcibly. It means if someone's little kid is walking out into the lake and getting deeper and deeper and deeper, then someone's got to go out and grab them forcibly and pull them back in. It means to seize, to grip firmly. It's also used to arrest someone, to take somebody into, into custody. And so for him to be held in its power is, is this attempt to get to get the force of this word, it's not just simply to hold, it's to hold with a firm grip, a strong grip. And Peter is saying it was impossible for Jesus to be held in the grip of death. It's power. There are some places where this word is used just to give you a sense of it. Jesus said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Now, we were looking at some sheep the other day. We went to Denver Downs. The first time I've been there, I've heard about it like for years and years and years and finally I went there to see it. And there are some sheep in there and they're not little cute little fluffy things. They're kind of dirty. Um, They are white. They're woolly. And I can imagine if one of these things fell into a ditch, what would it take for me to get a hold of it and pull it out? What kind of a grip would you have to have? And this is what Jesus said, hey, when one of you guys get your sheep fall in a ditch, oh, by the way, I've been watching some YouTubes on border collies. They're pretty cool. But every now and then, you know, sheep get in a bad way. But pulling that sheep out, all right, You've got you to have a strong hand and a strong hold. Matthew 14, 3, for when Herod had arrested John, that is, gripped him, took him into custody, apprehended him, detained him, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. Here's that word again. It's impossible for death to keep a grip on Jesus. This grip where people can be arrested and bound and put in prison. They were coming down from the mountain, Mark 9, 9 and 10. They were coming down from the mountain and he gave them orders to relate to anyone what they had, not to relate to anyone what they had seen on the mountain, Peter, James, John, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And here's that word again, krateo. They grabbed it. They grabbed the statement. They weren't going to let it go. Some of you all watch discussions in the back room and you go, are they ever going to let that go? Like, no, we've seized on this thing and we're going to be talking about it. And that's what the disciples did and so that's my reason for talking back there. There it is. I got biblical reasons to seize upon a passage and discuss it until we understand it. To grip it, to grab it. Hebrews 4.4, one that we're all familiar with, 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us grip our confession. Grip it in a way that you do not let it go. You maintain a strong grip on your commitment to Christ and your faith in Christ and the, the realities that are articulated in the doctrines of the Bible and the teachings. We stand our ground in our faith and our commitment to Jesus no matter what. We keep our grip on God and the gospel. And so here, it was impossible for him, Jesus, to be held in its grip, to be gripped by death. The first thing we see is death is gripping. Unless some force more powerful than death intervenes, when death gets a hold of a human being, it becomes a permanent state of affairs. Death is final. It will hold us all in its power unless God intervenes. It tried to hold Jesus in its power, but God intervened. The human race was seized by death through Adam's sin. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And all died because all sinned. And to understand it, just read the rest of the passage. Paul explains what he means. Don't just camp there on that first verse. That's an introductory verse. The rest gives you the explanation. Death got its grip on every human being. Death is the ultimate enemy of every human being. It circumscribes us. It defines us. It one day dismantles us. You can live for 60, 70, 80 years, but in the end, death is waiting for you. So you young folks, your, your life is ahead of you, and it should be, and you should think in positive ways, but also remember, all these old people around here, older people and old people, you will be us one day. It will be a blink, and you will be us, and you will be facing the reality of the grip of death. It is your enemy, but unfortunately, it defines you. Death is gripping. It cannot be invaded. It cannot be escaped. It cannot be reversed by human effort. Read all the books you want on the 100-year lifestyle. You might make it to 105. You might make it to 110, but you still have an expiration date. You still have a date with death, and it's ultimately not in your control. It's power. But for Jesus, God put an end to death, an end to the agony, an end to its grip, because it was impossible for him to be gripped by it. Only in Jesus and the resurrection can any human being ever be released from death's grip, and that's why we preach the gospel, and that's why it's good news. In America, in the, I don't know, the media, they push death off to the side. Don't worry about death. Modern American medicine has made us sort of free from a lot of the ravages of disease. And we think the rest of the world has lived like us. They, hasn't. We li they haven't. We live in a unique place in a unique era. Most of the rest of the world now and in all of previous history 
was subject to disease everywhere. People got an infection, died. This happened, they died. Things that we can easily fix now. But all of that modern medicine cannot fix death and all of the proclamations of people will one day fix it. No, they won't. Death is a result of sin. You gotta fix sin first. It was a sovereign God who put Jesus on the cross and it was a sovereign God to put it into his grip. And I want us to turn to Psalm 18. We have a vivid picture here. A brief statement of the agony of death and the grip of death. And then this vivid poetic picture. Psalm 18 of what I believe is a description of the resurrection of Jesus by God as Father. Eighteen one. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. I'm reading out of the ASV. You're kind of stuck with it because it's the only version I got right now. My God, my rock on whom I will take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower. It's a good place to always start in prayer and praise, isn't it? I don't feel like these things, maybe, but I know these things are true, and this is what I'm going to live on and believe on and walk in and trust in. Verse 3, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. So now David starts to tell his story. And like many a psalm, the words of David begin to morph into the words of the coming Messiah. The cords of death compassed me and the floods of the ungodliness made me afraid. The cords of Sheol were round about me. The snares of death came upon me. In my distress, I called upon Yahweh and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry before him came into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the mountains quaked and were shaken because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down and thick darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly, yea, he soared upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his pavilion round about him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the sky. At the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightnings manifold and discomfited them. Then the channels of the water appeared and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent forth from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them that hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They came upon me in the day of my calamity but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place and delivered me because he delighted in me. 
The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands as he recompensed me. Now, I don't know where David's experience ends and the experience of Messiah begins. But I'm pretty sure that kind of poetry isn't just simply about David having a really bad case of the flu and being near death. God was deeply involved. He was there. He was personally involved. Was there ever a closeness between God and the Son than at that point when he was in the state of death? Y'all with children, you know. You know what it is. You have your, your children there and you love them all, but when one gets sick, who gets the attention? The sick one. You got one eye open wondering how are they doing. If they're little, you start worrying about things that you start, your imagination starts going, doesn't it? How close was God to his son when he was in the grip of death? His prayer was, you've forsaken me, but God was this close. This close. The power of poetry to capture things. Well, it's impossible for Christ to remain in the grip of death, and you all could probably come up with a list Here's a quick one. It's not possible because he was the, the eternal son in him was life and the darkness doesn't overcome that life. He's the light of men. The life is a light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Darkness doesn't overcome it. There's no way death could overcome the light and life of the world. Can't happen. Impossible for him to remain in its grip. It was impossible because he's the holy one. Acts 3, 14 and 15, you disown the holy and righteous one. He's the holy one. Here, holiness means he's consecrated or set apart for God. All those passages in the Old Testament that talk about Messiah, that talk about the arm of the Lord. He's the holy one. In Luke, we read that the angel said to Mary, that which is begotten of you is holy. And Mark, the demons knew he was the Holy One. We know you're the Holy One. As soon as they got into the presence of Jesus, they knew who he was and they reacted and couldn't help but speak out. Jesus is the Holy One. Death can't keep God's Holy One. He's the righteous one. Here, righteousness means conform to the moral nature and requirements of God. Death is ultimately the wages of sin, and Jesus had none. He's the righteous servant, Isaiah 53. He's the righteous branch, Jeremiah 23. He is our advocate, the Jesus the righteous, 1 John 2. And he is the righteous judge of the living and the dead, 2 Timothy 4.8. Death is a punishment for sin, and Jesus had none. It was impossible for death to keep him in its grip. Jesus is called the prince of life. This word, prince, can mean several things. It can mean the one who goes first on the path, the leader, the pioneer, the prince, the point man, the point man of life. Or it can mean one who causes something to happen, to begin and to happen, the originator, the founder, the initiator of life. How can the initiator of life remain in the grip of death? Can't happen. John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
It's not possible to be, to be held in the grip of death because he was the sacrifice for sins. He was not dying there for his own sins. He was there for others. He's the Lamb of God. He's a replacement for us. He is our substitute. He was fulfilling all the types and shadows and prophecies around the atonement. And when he was done, death no more had a grip on him. We read in Hebrews 1.3 all these incredible things about Jesus and then it finishes with when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Kind of reading about that's what Acts chapter 2 is about. Here's a brief summary. It was not possible for death to keep its grip on Jesus because he fully atoned for the sins of those whom he represented. Jesus made purification, full atonement for all the sins of all his people It was done. It was finished. Death had no more grip on him. In Romans, Paul says he was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised for our justification. Again, Jesus fully atoned for sins. He was the penal substitute for our sins. He made full payment for all the sins for which he had become liable. He paid off our sin credit cards. When we get born, we get born and we're given a credit card. We're sinners, and we get a sin credit card. And we start charging on that card every day, charging sin on it. And we know that one day, the creditor is going to come, God, and we're going to have to deal with that balance on our credit card. But Jesus has stepped in and has paid the balance off. An interesting thing about a credit card, I don't know if you've ever made an overpayment, but I've made an overpayment. You know what they do? They quick send you that money in a check. Because you can't make any overpayments on credit cards. They're not banks. They're credit companies. They don't borrow money. They lend money. That's how they make money. And you can't overpay your credit card. You can't, you know, go, well, you know, Jesus, you paid off my debt, but I'm going to put some extra on it and get the balance, in this case, negative. Can't do it. That's not how credit cards work. So don't, don't try. Be satisfied that Jesus paid your balance. You're righteous. Again, it's not possible for Jesus to be held in the grip of death because he's our great high priest. Our great high priest. You are my son. This day have I begotten you is said to be the resurrection of Christ. A lot of people debate, what is a sonship? You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Wait a minute. Well, just read, you know, read Hebrews 725, read Acts 13, read Psalm 2 and Hebrews 5, 5 and you go to the resurrection. This day have I begotten you, this day have I raised you from the dead and installed you as my son, heir of all creation. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. Death cannot have a grip on him. And you can just go into prophecy after prophecy, itemize all these things but it was impossible for death to hold its grip on him because he is the prince of life. He is the eternal son. He is the one of whom it is stated he will rise from the dead. And God intervened and brought that to pass. So the real question for all of you is, do you believe on this Jesus? Not just have you learned about him or you know, heard about him in Sunday school or from others, but do you really believe on him? Do you trust his atonement? Do you look for his resurrection power? Every one of us has an expiration date, some of us sooner than later.
Do you trust in his resurrection power? He came into the world to pay our debt of sin that he might obtain a just forgiveness on our behalf, pay off that sin credit card. And his resurrection guarantees that he can save to the uttermost all that come under God by him. So if you haven't come, today's your day. Come, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved.